before we begin, a disclaimer, this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for any investment decision. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security. The securities discussed on this podcast may be owned by persons being interviewed. Before making any investment decision, please consult an investment advisor. And so Jess goes up to her, she's like, hey, can we borrow a dog bag? And this woman's like, sorry, I don't actually carry any on me. Uh, dog poop is compo- it decomposes. And so I'm just like happy to leave it, leave it out there. And, uh, and the plastic from the dog bags is really bad for the environment. So uh, I don't have any. I heard that about this thing in Brooklyn where parents were letting their babies walk around without diapers. Next level, like, yeah. It, it's it's one of these. Um, this is the way nature intended. Yeah, we were all die- dying at like thirty years old. So you know, yeah, like these anti-vaxxers, man. Um, there's like a oh, case, yeah, that's a case of measles is... here. You know, like and actually, I was listening to this um, podcast where this uh, researcher was saying they can actually tie autism back to a few genes. Yeah, but autism doesn't manifest until the ages of one and two, which just happens to coincide with when babies get their vaccines. And so people are drawing this correlation, but they're like two separate things. Yeah. Correlation is not causation, right? Yeah. Um, all right. Should we, do you want to dive in here and see kind of where this? Yeah. Yeah. I think you and I have both done stuff, try to build businesses, um, you know, outside of the public markets. And so I think it's interesting kind of thinking about, you know, analyzing a business from an investor standpoint versus actually getting into the weeds and trying to build it. And there's like, um, just like a very different process that you have to go through and and learnings from from both endeavors. So cool. Um, what's the so what's the origin story here? How did you what, what's what's the name of this company that you started uh, a while back? And how did you come up with this um, Airbnb for construction equipment idea? <laughs> Dude, I'm um, I guess I'm a little bit embarrassed to to say what the name is because. Okay. It was called Quipshare, or and uh, the reason is that Quipshare was taken, so we just did Quipshare, or so not Quipshare, but Quipshare, or yeah, yeah, with an yeah, er, er, er. So it's kind of doomed to fail from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> stupid, stupid company. No. Yeah. Anyway, so like I was analyzing the heavy equipment leasing companies, so you know Hertz, United Rentals. Sunbelt, which I think was part of, is part of Ashtad. And I guess I kind of saw two things. You know, the first was that I didn't really love the business for a few reasons. There was, you know, it was structured so that in good times, so in an economic, you know, when the economy is doing well, you know, they're buying equipment. And then during bad times, they're trying to reduce their fleet. So they're selling equipment. So mm-hmm. if you think about it from an investor standpoint, they're, they're buying high, they're constantly buying high when the equipment values are high and then they're selling low. And then if you look at like economic returns through the cycle, if you go back 10, 20 years, they're, they're earning below their cost of capital. And so I was like, you know, this is kind mm-hmm. of a pretty crappy business. But that being said, if you look at the rates that they're charging, their customers on, if you look at it, like on a actual dollar per equipment value, that's actually out rented at the time. Sometimes it can be over a hundred percent. And I'm like, wow, that's just a crazy return that you're getting. Mm-hmm. And so there must be like tons of costs that are just getting, getting eaten up for them to actually not be able to earn, you know, a good, a good rate of return. 
And so that was kind of one thing that I saw. And the yeah. other thing was like, you had a lot of, um, or, or sorry, I saw something that said like rental companies had 50% of the equipment out there. And then the mm -hmm. other 50% was owner operated. And so there was this natural kind of two-sided marketplace where um, you had both people who wanted to rent and both people and also people who owned. And so I guess the simple thing is like I had an idea to to create a peer-to-peer -peer model. So a small construction company who owns, let's say, a bulldozer, if it's not being used, create a platform for them to lease that piece of equipment out to another construction company who might have a project that they need for you know, a day, a few days or a week or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and basically I thought that this platform would be able to charge lower, lower prices than like our United rentals would. And, um, the fat would basically come from improved utilization. And then also like, you know, cutting back on all the overhead that goes into running United rentals. Right. And so like United rentals, for instance, like they had utilization of like 66%, let's just say like you brought that to 80%. That'd be like a twenty percent pricing improvement that you'd be able to get, and then also SGNA accounted for fifteen percent of their revenue, and so that's another kind of bucket that you can cut into. And then I guess the, the other thing that I thought about was, you know, this is a huge industry, so forty billion dollars of transaction of equipment are transacted on a rental basis per year, mm -hmm. and so if you're able to build this peer-to-peer -peer ne network, you're able to get scale. It could be like immensely profitable whoever, to whoever like you know becomes the incumbent. I described it as um, Airbnb for construction equipment rental yeah. uh, because first it's not it's not just about matching supply and demand but you're kind of introducing new supply into the marketplace right with like un unutilized equipment time and then second because there's just a diversity of projects and so you have this diversity of equipment so it's not just a homogenous supply pool like you know Uber or whatever but it also seems like unlike Airbnb there's this like last mile logistics challenge here you know, that you're responsible for because you've got to get the equipment from point A to point B. Like local density is critical and not just to s establish like sufficient liquidity along multiple SKUs, but also to scale logistics. Yeah. I mean, I think those are like, um, dude, you kind of hit like two really important points, which, you know, the first point on like density issues and like route density and, and um, scale benefits. I mean, that's definitely true. And so when you look at the incumbents, you know, that's part of the value that they provide is that they've got all of these nodes and they can provide lower transportation costs than I would. Mm -hmm. And so until you, until you get to that type of scale, like, you know, that your transportation costs are going to be a lot higher than everyone else. Right. That being said, I mean, you look at kind of what transportation costs are, they're typically call it like around 20 ish percent of the total economic cost to someone who's like renting the piece of equipment. Mm. Right. Um, so it's important, but like a larger piece is definitely the, um, like the rental rate that you're charging. Right. And so I guess when you were trying to, when you were thinking about getting people to get onto your platform so they can match, how did you think about sort of this classic chicken egg problem? I guess the first step was trying to get people who own the equipment to see the logic in what you were saying. You know, you're inclined to be like, all right, I'm going to spend a ton of money, build out a platform and, and, and just like have this like really shiny product that's going to bring users and or lessors and lessees on board. And yeah. um, in reality, you really want to start like they, they said, you don't want to spend money. You want to start with like a minimal um, value proposition, essentially, where it's like mm -hmm. if you could just do this thing on a, a spreadsheet and, and get people interested, 
like that's all you need. And then you can kind of create the bells and whistles afterwards. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. So then it's like cold calling. Cause you know, a lot of times you're calling up a company and they could both be a lessor and a lessee, and you're not necessarily sure until you've talked to them. When you, when you got them on the phone, what were the numbers that you were laying out to make it sort of make sense to them? Yeah. So I think like, um, for someone who owns their equipment, it's really just kind of talking to them about like depreciation costs. So this is something like a lot of guys just don't even think of. And, you know, for these guys who just have their equipment sitting around, we said, you know, every year that you're not using it or every hour that you, that's not being used, you're losing money. And yeah. we did this, like, um, we went onto like these secondary market websites where you could see the, the value of a piece of equipment based on how old it is and how many hours it's been used. Mm-hmm. And we actually did like a multivariable regression of several different types of equipment. And what you got was that like, you know, it depends on how old it is, what, what it was, but on average, you're seeing like a 4% um, value reduction every year um, that it's older. And so yeah. for someone who, someone who has a, you know, $300,000 dozer, for instance, sitting around their yard, that's a $12,000 economic cost that they're bearing that they're not really thinking of. Um, but if they ever want to sell their dozer, you know, it's going to get that much less money. And so, right. you know, the point to them is don't let that just sit around. Like you should get cash for that while you're not being, while you're not using it. So that's for a lessor, a lessee. It's really simple. It's just, Hey, do you want, would you use this website if we're able to charge you lower prices? Mm-hmm. And, and that sell was like so much easier. B- basically everyone's like, yep, if you want to use lower price, if there's lower prices, we'll definitely use it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But the hardest thing is getting so, like a lessor to sign up. What was their major pushback to you when you were trying to get them to sign up? Maybe I can tell you a little bit of a story. So we actually went up uh-huh. to, we went up to Ithaca, New York. Uh, mm-hmm. There was like this, like, like huge um, construction conference that they have there. And um, we like went to all the booths and talked to a bunch of people. And I remember walking out, I was talking to this one guy and he was about our age. He inherited his father's business. Mm-hmm. And he's like, listen, he's like, I've been doing this my entire life. Um, I know how my business works. You don't. And so like, there's this kind of like, mm-hmm. if it ain't fixed, you know, sorry, if it ain't broken, don't fix it type mentality. And yeah. then, the other thing is he was like, he was like, I've got 12 pieces of equipment and they are pristine. And the reason they're pristine is, you know, I clean my fucking boots before I stand in them. And it's like, and like, and he's like, and yeah. I don't, he's like, and I don't use them. Like, you know, I don't use them that off. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, you don't understand. Like, this isn't your baby. This is, right. um, a piece of like equipment. It's, it's an investment. And to him, it was more about like, almost like showing off a car that he bought or like, you know, a piece of jewelry that he has. Yeah. So there's a lot of pride of ownership. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's all pride of ownership and they treat it like they're, it's their baby and it's not like a financial investment that they've made. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say that the reactions you got were hostile or was it more indifference? Um, it was, it was mostly indifference. Yeah. Mostly indifference. And, and like, I mean, I think a lot of people just have this, you know, like they're an insider and you're not. And so they're like, they look at you with a little bit of skepticism, but yeah, I mean, so like we, but like we did all of the, you know, if we looked at it from like a pricing perspective, we, we thought we could comfortably price the equipment or it would, it would have been a marketplace, right? We weren't actually setting prices, but we thought that the equipment could be priced at call it a 20 to 30% discount to whatever 
a rental company was charging. And that would provide, that would cover the higher transportation costs that we would have to bear, the insurance costs that we would have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And then um, it would give, you know, an economic incentive to owners. And it would also be at, obviously at a lower price to, to renters. And, um, and, and that argument just kind of fell flat. <laughs> Huh. So I guess you were talking about United Rentals earlier. So United Rentals, they play a matching function here, except they actually own the equipment that's being rented. And so they're realizing scale economies on transportation. I guess they have procurement advantages on equipment and they've got um, you know over a thousand branches so they can target national deals. And so it seems the scale economies are are sort of in full effect. I mean, I think in general it is a more efficient model. Mm-hmm. But that that being said, I think I think there's a place for a peer to peer market alongside a pure play leasing market. And so it comes to there's a lot of nuances in the industry. So if you look at you know the type of job that you would have to do, there are certain jobs where it's a very you know clear timeline. So let's just say like bulldozing a site. You know, it's going to take you one or two days and there's not a lot of kind of variance that's going to happen. And yeah. I think a, peer, a peer-to-peer model for that is like, you know, that's the, that's the obvious um, use case. But if you look at something else, like um, let's just say like an aerial lift, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's multiple types of lifts, you know, size, height, agility, and all that stuff. And you're going to need a very distinct product for whatever the job is. And so there's that diversity benefit, right? But then also, but then also there's like certain jobs where you can't predict exactly what the schedule is going to be like. And part of it comes down to, you know, view it from a customer's perspective, like a, a user's perspective. Mm-hmm. If your costs of your job has a lot of labor involved versus you versus equipment costs involved, like who cares if you're saving 20, 20% on the equipment costs? Mm-hmm. If that equipment malfunctions or isn't there on time, like you're going to lose a lot of money by just having a bunch of guys sit around. Right. And so like for someone like that, they definitely want to like go with the United Rental who says like, let's say they bring a piece of equipment and it breaks down. Well, they're able to get someone else, a new piece of equipment there that day, you know? Right. Um, whereas like someone who, like I said, let's going back to like a, like a, like a, like a bulldozing example. Mm-hmm. That guy, there's not a lot of labor that goes into that. It's mostly just the equipment costs and it's a pretty like, you know, kind of basic job. And so there's not as much of a necessity to make sure that, you know, things are going to go properly, um, you know, on schedule. And so there is like a value that United Rentals provides, which is there's a service component, um, a maintenance component, and, and also just like the diversity of what they offer. It seems United Rentals is playing sort of this centralizing role in equipment space where where there are maybe system level scale economies to centralizing ownership of this equipment, where they own the equipment, they pass on part of the scale benefits to the renters. Whereas sort of in the Airbnb model, um, something that you were contemplating, it's still like you still need people to own their equipment, right? So if more and more contractors are going to be renting their equipment from a centralized owner like United Rentals, then over time that sort of saps the supply of you know, frag- the saps the amount of like fragmentation required to have a healthy network for like an Airbnb model. It's a good point. If I think about like, if you take the market to the, to its extreme, so United Rentals, if like they probably serve a lot of small, smaller businesses, mm-hmm. the larger guys can own their fleet. And if they have enough diversity of business, they can basically just, you know, use it, 
improve the utilization that way. Yeah. And so like maybe like the industry goes there where it's just large guys own their equipment, small guys don't, but still the larger guys are going to have equipment sitting around. Mm -hmm. And so whoever owns a piece of equipment, um, as long as it's not a United Rentals, if there's a, an opportunity for them to to improve utilization, they should put it on this platform, like a peer-to-peer platform and, and rent it out. Right. And so, and so there's that, but then this isn't maybe necessarily sustainable, but I think equipment owners don't necessarily think about like depreciation costs as a real mm-hmm. cost. And so <laughs> it's almost like in the short term, you're going to have people who are willing to rent their equipment out below what they actually should be. Yeah. And so I think if you're actually playing this out over like a, you know, multi-decade period, you would actually see if peer-to-peer were to take off, you would see peer-to-peer model price below what an actual economic price would be. That would put United Rentals, Hertz, all those guys out of business, and then prices would go up. And it, it would really be similar to like Airbnb, uh, to Uber and Lyft, where these guys price below what a cab rate would be. And now you're seeing prices come back up. And like, and hopefully, you know, the intangible benefit of having like that huge network, the brand name and all that stuff keeps like the um, legacy players at bay. What, what made you uh, finally throw in the towel? What was sort of the biggest uh, like hurdle that you just couldn't get over or didn't think was worth it, worth the time and the energy? We just talked to so many people who were just not willing to change their ways. And I think I got to the point where I was like, this makes sense, but the time and effort it's going to take to convince people of it is just too long for like, like I basically don't have the patience or yeah. um, you know, the ability to, to kind of wait that out. Yeah. And yeah. so I decided to move on. But there's, I mean, there's a few things I kind of learned through the process. Like, like one thing would be um, like a simple concept is actually, it gets a lot more complicated than what it, like what you start out as. And so like we were talking initially like, oh yeah, Airbnb of equipment, of heavy equipment. And it sounds very simple, but then, you know, as we discussed, you get into like logistics, you know, handling insurance, who actually owns the equipment during that rental period, who's at risk. And then, and also dealing with different types of jobs and use cases and all that stuff. And so like the ability to manage that complexity creates value. And so like, when we think about, when we think about like um, business qualities and like portified forces, sometimes it's easy to like overlook that, but like, like kind of simple logistical things are, are, do create barriers in my opinion. Oh yeah, for sure. I guess, I guess the second thing is like, it just kind of highlighted the importance of sales. So like, I was like banging my head against the desk, just like being like, I'm looking at these depreciation rates. I'm trying to tell these guys, like you are losing a lot of money every year by having your equipment sit around and they just didn't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you think this, you think you would have had a much better shot if, if you had a, an insider as a partner, like somebody who was really well connected in this space and had a lot of credibility? Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think if you have like, and I mean, dude, I talked, I talked to like a billion dollar, um, billion dollar construction company. And I talked to, um, you know, like kind of like a mid-level guy there. And he was like, super interesting model. Mm -hmm. Like, I think this is like a great idea. I'm like, great. Would you guys want to participate in this? He's like, no, we're, we're wait. (laughs) Absolutely not. We're way too old school. (laughs) That's, that's so interesting though. Like the, the cultural aspect uh, of this whole thing, how at a certain point, reason and economics can be overwhelmed by these other factors, you know, do these guys already rent out 
their equipment on their own, but just to people they know? Like, are there these small balkanized, like local matching networks? I don't think, no. I mean, that wasn't my experience at all. Hey, do, do you want to talk about your business? Yeah. I mean, I think compared to what you were trying to do with equipment rentals, Scuttleblurb is a, is a walk in the park. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you need an internet connection, a laptop, <laughs> and that's yeah. about it. <laughs> The, the basic attributes here is content has no marginal cost. And so whether 10 people read my blog or 10,000 do, my costs are mostly tr- mostly the same. So, I mean, Braintree takes 3% for credit card transactions. So that's a variable cost. But, you know, Scuttleblurb's global HQ is the attic of the house that I'm renting <laughs> in Portland. Um, you know, hosting, internet connection, laptop, those are kind of like fixed, semi-fixed costs. <laughs> these costs so, like these costs total like a hundred bucks a year or so. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, um, of course, the flip side to all this is that there are just no entry barriers to, at all to what I do. Right. So anyone can do it. So the challenge is always differentiating yourself. That's that's yeah. the biggest thing. Well, I think I guess like it's like it's about um, demonstrating value and then also making sure that actual that people see the value. That's sort of. Um, a key piece of it. And then once they do get exposure to it, that they can say, well, this is different enough from this other thing that I'm looking at to want to pay for. At the, at the funds that I used to work at, I had the chance to read through a lot of independent research, as I'm sure you have. And we subscribed to a bunch of it. And it always seemed dissatisfying for, for a number of reasons. I mean, I guess first, most of them I thought charged way too much for what they were providing. It seemed a lot of a lot of these research reports have a big thud factor, but it's mostly just padding, right? And copy and paste operations from from the 10Ks and Excel models, and then they charge like thousands of dollars a year for this. You know, in in all the research I read, maybe there was one good independent research shop. I, I, well, one that I thought was exceptional that was like off Wall Street. I don't know if you if you had ever read those. I didn't. I didn't actually read that. Yeah, but I thought they did. Good work, but um, uh, I guess um, I also didn't like how lopsided and agenda oriented so much of the research is. I mean, like long pitches predictably overlook the downside. If, if it's a short pitch, I mean, forget about it. Like the company, its whole management team should just all be burning in hell right now. And so, <laughs> yeah, you know, don't get me wrong. I think short selling plays an important role in the markets. Obviously, I used to be a short seller myself, but it's hard to find short biased research that isn't sensationalized and lopsided. I, I think for some of these short sellers, there's just no innocuous data point that can't be twisted into something nefarious. A lot of these guys will see like fertilizer in your garage and accuse you of building a bomb. They've, it's, <laughs> they've got kind of like that that sort of yeah. Uh, mindset. Yeah. Part of this is motivated by, the, by economics and grabbing attention, but I also think tribal instincts play a role. I think like when you're about to write about a company, there's sort of this feeling that, you know, you have to take a side and there's a tendency to want to tell like a perfectly consistent story. And so people will like start with a conclusion, this is a rotten company, and then kind of selectively pick data points to build an argument for why that's true. Yeah. So like someone once said, and maybe I saw this on Twitter, often it seems like analysts act more like lawyers trying to argue a case than like judges trying to discover the truth. And hmm. I don't know, that seems pretty accurate, pretty accurate with, yeah. like you should be able to shit on a stock that you own. And if you can't, or you feel yourself getting emotional when someone else does, then probably time to ask yourself, are you trying to look smart or are you trying to be right? 
so I'm not trying to set high and mighty at this point, by the way, like I have to check myself every now and then too. So yeah, that's definitely like a unique approach, which, which is like, stop trying to pitch a, like a perspective and just like lay like an unbiased opinion out there. And like, you can have a, you can have a viewpoint, but acknowledge like things aren't black and white, you know, there's a gray area, you know? Yeah. Investors, they think about stocks in terms of like weights in portfolios. They don't think like buy, sell. It also seems to me that the vast majority of write-ups you'll see out there do um, kind of one of two things. Either they'll just laundry list impressive stats. So like Google has, you know, five different properties with a billion users or Facebook has 2 billion users, et cetera. Or like they'll spend a lot of time talking about DCF assumptions and how their model suggests, you know, 42.4% upside in the stock. Whereas the write-ups I've always found the most compelling are qualitative in nature and address why questions instead of instead of what. So it's more about figuring out how the machine works than about like how many widgets the machine churned out last quarter or last year. It's, it's more yeah. about like evaluating the company within the context of its competitive environment or its place in the value chain. And yeah, so that that to me is the good stuff. And so basically what I'm trying to write is like the stuff that I'm trying to read, examining companies within the context of their ecosystems and then writing that in a balanced and exploratory way. Anyway, listen, like I, I get the value proposition of what you offer. I think the hardest thing for you is like, how do you go to market? And like, you know, clearly like you've got a good product. You you have like, how do you get people to see it? And um... no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so what you said is, is, is basically the, the crux of this whole thing, right? It's just like, how do you stand out in an ocean of content? I could just tell you from my experience, like the, the first few months of Scuttleboard, I was just summarizing earnings calls, but that got boring. And so I pivoted to doing like actual write-ups, right? And so for the first first five or six months of this was brutal. It was just like spending day and night writing and posting, getting no feedback, no subs, <laughs> like new baby to feed. And so I was just publishing into a vacuum and just basically wondering like, man, I've, I've just made a huge mistake, you know? So, so there are a few marketing efforts that I tried early on. I cold emailed like countless funds and investment advisors and I attached, you know, free samples of my work to the email, didn't get a single sign up and got like a few rude replies back. I tried to get on some weekend link fest, rejected from all of them. And so another thing I did was, so I drew up like a list of all the value-oriented funds and wealth managers that I could find. And then I typed up these semi-personalized letters for all of them. I attached like a coupon code for the blog and then I printed them out and literally just snail mailed them out. And so, so this was like direct mail, right? <laughs> so the logic, the logic here was like, so I was trying to think, okay, what's the context in which people will open these letters? And I thought, well, okay, they'll be sitting at their desk at work in front of a computer. They'll have some downtime. Maybe they're like eating lunch or something and they'll see this letter <laughs> with, with a handwritten with a handwritten address and think oh this is interesting they'll decide to like check out the site right so that didn't work either i got <laughs> maybe like two people to uh subscribe that way so it was basically just rejection after rejection i know i did like an email marketing campaign through market folly and that went all right but i would say things didn't really start turning until uh summer 2017 and that was when at Liberty RPF on Twitter found one of my posts and tweeted it. And then Bluegrass Cap did the same for another post shortly thereafter. And then 
things have just kind of spread from there. And my guess is that the overwhelming majority of subs is someone who either found me on Twitter directly or is like one degree removed from someone who found me on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, it's not like I'm killing it here. <laughs> so I, like, I hope what I'm saying doesn't come across as like how I built this success porn. Um, so like the struggle to build this thing like still continues. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to get anyone to subscribe to um, like a news product. And so like, well, not a news product, but like any sort of like research product, it's hard to get someone to subscribe and give you money. And so like, yeah, that's absolutely true. Like people don't think they, they should have to pay for things they read on the internet. It, um, they're, they're sort of accustomed to the ad model. Well, that's a good point, actually. I mean, have you thought about like the ad model and comparing it to like maybe like viewership versus like, you know, CPM and all that stuff? I don't know. I just don't think it would work for the, the kind of stuff that I do because um, I think to run like a, a good ad business, you need lots of content like all the time. Yeah. And, yeah. and you need like things that are click worthy. And so it's a little bit of a different... Yeah, I, I I have a hard time seeing me scale something like that. Yeah, I don't think I don't think your research applies to the masses. I don't know. <laughs> I, so I I guess I guess the main lesson there with, with all these uh, marketing failures is just I, I think for a product like this where it's like an investment newsletter uh, where there are just so many charlatans, right? <laughs> you like you can't you can't sell your own product. Like no one's going to believe you. I think you need subscribers and other credible people to be advocates. On, on your behalf. And so if you accept that that's true, what are the implications there? You know, well, okay, so if, if you wanna grow subs, you need two things. You need people to spread the word and you need to control your churn. And both of those things basically tie back to one thing and it's just high quality content. That's like 99% of what the focus should be. And there's just no shortcuts there. You know, you just have to put in the hours and grind it out. The design of the website, marketing, and and all that. I mean, that stuff's just details compared to compared to the content. Maybe there's a bigger point to be made here about like why a business like this is even possible. It's not only that the internet gets rid of these middlemen and makes it theoretically possible to have a global audience, but it's also it just allows people to more easily self organize into these like narrow narrower and narrower niches, you know, or have algorithms do it. I know that to me is why like Twitter has been such a potent tool for for the blog. It's like the stuff I write about is for a very niche audience. It's not like current news. It's not a stock pitch that's going to make you money. Like you have to genuinely be interested in reading up on business models and industries, even without the carrot of an actionable investment idea. And I just don't think a lot of people yeah. are into that. Well, yeah, I feel like Twitter, it's good because it, um, it allows you to like self-curate kind of what you want to see. And then also you kind of, there is that like pot, there's that feedback loop of if you see someone that you respect who likes a certain type of stuff, if you know that they're following you, then they would, you know, obviously. Oh yeah. Social proof, like all the way. Yeah. It definitely makes like, I guess the world a little bit smaller in that perspective. How, how do you feel about like these, um like the marketing campaigns? I know you said like they weren't, they were like moderately successful, but like you know, you kind of run, you run a, a, a subscription business. Yeah. Like, how do you think about like LTV to CAC? And like, you know, is there a, a point at which some point you're like, hey, it's worth me spending these marketing dollars yeah. to get new eyeballs in the door? Uh, I guess the way I was thinking about it was not so much LTV to CAC, just because I just didn't have any data to know what the LTV was and, and all that. I, I guess the, the way I was thinking about it more was how quickly do I recoup the marketing dollars? 
Hmm. What I was doing was more just looking over the next month. The pure. Like how many subs come right. over the next month, like really close to really proximate to the right. to the marketing campaign. So that was my measure of like, is this work is marketing working or not? Is the marketing campaign something you want to continue to pursue or is it not really worth it? Um, I don't think so. I mean, the last one I did was like early 2017, I think. I mean, it's been a few years since mm -hmm. I did one. I think I did like uh, several of them with Market Folly, and that that was the that was it, though. You know how people like make a great living off of this, though, is that they turn their newsletter business into like a conference business, uh, sort of like Jim Grant yeah. has done, or um, uh, or like Manual of Ideas, like they do that. I think you need the right personality for it. It comes down to sales. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess since I'm talking about Scuttleblur, the business, I guess now's a good time to say if you're a subscriber listening now, thank you for taking a leap of faith and subscribing. I am incredibly grateful for all your support and it really means a great deal. Um, and I, I think that's a good place to end it. Yeah, you want to just do that? All right. Thanks everyone. We'll talk to you soon.